Imagine if in the span of 10 years, your government built over 4 million homes for working class and low income people. What would it mean if you, your family, and your neighbors finally had dignified housing? What if housing were actually treated as a human right and not a commodity? In Venezuela, that is precisely what has been going on since 2011 when President Hugo Chavez launched the Great Housing Mission with the deliberate aim of decommodifying housing in the country. While capitalist countries push for the further financialization of housing in order to please the owners of capital, in Venezuela, the government is aiming to build another million homes, bringing the total to 5 million by 2025. But this extraordinary achievement would not have been possible without pressure from social movements, who understand that the fight for housing is a fight against capitalism itself. Welcome to the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings you independent, on-the-ground, English-language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. You'll hear news and in-depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftist and grassroots forces. On today's program, we're going to take a look at the struggle to establish housing as a human right. Venezuela's Great Housing Mission is one of the revolution's flagship social programs and a model for countries in Latin America and beyond. Like few other issues, the fight for the decommodification of housing is one that brings the contradictions of capitalism right to the fore. There's a reason why housing is considered a human right. But it is precisely because of its importance that there's this rapacious interest by the capitalist in treating it as a commodity, an asset, a vehicle for wealth accumulation, instead of a social good. According to the United Nations Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, Real estate represents 60% of the value of all global assets, with residential real estate comprising 75% of that, or 163 trillion US dollars, a figure that represents more than twice the world's GDP. If you're wondering why capitalist governments throughout the world are afraid to really tackle the issue, those figures are why. They're terrified of devaluing those housing assets by building affordable housing. The level of speculation in the housing market is so great that any instability could bring the entire economy down. One need only look at the 2008 financial crisis to understand the link between housing and financial markets. But of course, that doesn't mean people should throw up their hands in defeat. If the market cannot provide a solution, then surely that means we should take on the market itself. Indeed, in Venezuela, social movements are doing just that as they continue to occupy, resist, and produce housing. Make no mistake though, it is a struggle even in Venezuela, despite counting on some of the most progressive legislation in the world protecting tenants and workers. The multifactorial crisis brought on by the U.S.-led sanctions campaign has made life harder for working-class Venezuelans and brought new challenges as landlords and the bourgeoisie seek to squeeze out more rent from workers or push real estate speculation once more, forcing movements to hit the streets in protest. Venezuela's great housing mission wouldn't be where it is today were it not for these same social movements who not only fight for housing rights, but organized to break with capitalist logic itself, imagining a new type of city, a communal model, and a communal way of life. To shed light on the struggle to democratize the city, we will speak with Juan Carlos Rodriguez, spokesperson for the Movimiento de Pobladoras y Pobladores, a platform that brings together several organizations fighting against the logic of capital in urban environments. But first, a conversation between Venezuela analysis Andreina Chavez and myself on the roots of the Great Housing Mission, the role of social movements, and what the decommodification of housing means for the broader struggle against capitalism. 
Hi, Andreina. It's so good to have you back with us here on the program. And I wanted to begin with a personal anecdote. Among the many reasons I decided to stop trying to survive as a working class person in Canada and instead move back here to Mexico was the cost of housing. But once here in Mexico City, I similarly struggled to find affordable housing. Suffice it to say, the rising cost of this basic human right is a global phenomenon. And in Venezuela, despite the efforts to build millions of housing units for low-income and working-class people, it's still a challenge to find housing in a place like Caracas. Would you share with us an on-the-ground perspective of the current situation of housing in the capital? Where has the Great Housing Mission been successful? And why is it still just not quite enough to actually ensure that people have access to housing? Hi, Jose Luis. So nice talking to you again, and thank you for having me on the podcast. And yeah, I'm glad we're talking about Gran Misión Vivienda Venezuela and the housing situation in general. So first, I think I need to explain a little bit about um, Misión Vivienda. So as you know, this is Venezuela's public housing program, and it was created by the Hugo Chavez government in 2011 to build low-cost homes for working-class families. And so far, Mission Vivienda has built over 4 million homes for people in our country. So you could say that it is a very successful program. To me, Mission Vivienda is by far one of the most important social programs created by Hugo Chavez because it's not only about building houses. It is also about giving millions of people access to basic public services, access to the cities, access to education and healthcare programs that come with these new communities that they now belong to. So these 4 million people that have benefited from Mission Vivienda now have a dignified house, but also a dignified living. So dignity is a key element of Mission Vivienda. And the housing situation in Venezuela or Caracas in particular. So to give you an example, something like historical context. In Venezuela, like many other countries in Latin America, uh, every city, uh, the land, and all the public spaces were exclusively for the wealthy, for those with a higher income. That means that forever, the poor and the working class people were forced to live outside the cities in these unplanned constructions, uh, these houses that were unfit to withstand extreme weather conditions, places that are basically not good for living, places where there was never any public investment. So they never had public services like water, electricity, you know, everything that a human being needs. And, and actually, this became a, a national crisis in 2010 because that year, at the end of 2010, we had these heavy rains that caused landslides and displaced thousands of families. So back then, the Hugo Chavez government responded to the crisis by creating this emergency program to build new houses for the thousands of damnificados, the homeless people. And this is basically how Mission Vivienda begins. Over the years, the program uh, began to expand to build houses for working-class Venezuelans 
that needed a home but couldn't buy one. And the, the part that is really important here is that these houses from Mission Vivienda are being built in the country's major cities like Caracas. So this is also where the social program has been very successful because it has democratized the cities. So the poor, the working class, have been able to reclaim public spaces that were previously denied to them. Actually, if you walk around Caracas, you are going to see many buildings from Mission Vivienda in places that are in wealthy neighborhoods in you know, everywhere, there's no discrimination. Even here where I live in Parque Central, if I look outside the window, the first thing I see is a Mission Vivienda building. So these are people that not only received a home, a dignified home inside the city, but also they are not in debt to any bank or any landlord. They do pay for these houses or these apartments, but they pay a fair price and they can never lose their homes. So they have they have homes inside the city. They are homeowners, and you know how many people in the world can say that, especially in these times when people have to basically decide between eating, feeding their families, or paying rent. So you know, in that, in if you only if you think about it, Mission Vivienda is already such a success program because four million people living in having the opportunity to have a home and not being in debt to any bank and actually being able to live inside these major cities like Caracas is already a success story. However, we, we can say that the housing situation in Venezuela has been fixed by Mission Vivienda because we have a decades-long housing deficit and it continues to increase every year as the population grows. And Caracas in particular has always been a difficult place to live as a working class person because not only it is the Venezuelan capital, but it is a city that from its foundation was monopolized by the wealthy. And we, we still have a housing market that is prone to speculation. And this is fueled by the economic crisis, which in turn is also fueled by the U.S. government economic sanctions. So, yeah, we still have these communities in these unplanned constructions outside the city. And even if their needs are being met by many social programs, the fact is that they are still living in bad conditions. So, Mission Vivienda still has a long way to go. And in, on a personal side, uh, I, I also have many, many friends and colleagues that working class people, professionals that have gone back to their hometown, to the, to the countryside even, because living in Caracas is no longer an option given how expensive it is to pay rent or to make a living. So earlier I was talking about my own search for housing in Mexico, and it sounds like there are similar challenges in Venezuela, despite all of the gains that have been made through the social program. And I don't know if I actually told you this, but I ended up being evicted twice in the span of six months in the middle of a pandemic. And I landed on my feet and I found a solution. But I remember thinking at the time after the second eviction that if only I owned my own place, something like this couldn't happen to me again. And I ended up realizing that it, it betrayed how deeply even someone like me, who thinks about these issues a lot and who's involved with political struggle, had internalized this logic of markets and capitalism that individual solutions like owning your own home 
is how we can get out of this mess. And in our interview, in the next segment, our guest talks about private property being, quote, embedded in the subjectivity of society, end quote. And that instead, people should think about collective solutions. So from your point of view, what role do social movements play in shifting the consciousness of society on issues such as housing so that we can get away from these ideas that the solution lies in individual solutions, but instead should be collective? Well, first, I'm really glad that you found the solution. You know, something sort of similar happened to me. I was once evicted from an apartment and basically they began destroying the apartment while I was still living inside. So, yeah, it is, it is crazy how, how, this, how finding a house it is for people living in these cities. So I think you're right that we, we usually think that our, our problems would be solved if we just were able to buy a house or maybe get along and buy a house. And, you know, if you think about it, without social movement, without people finding collective solutions, Mission Vivienda in particular wouldn't have been possible. So a huge factor in the housing program's success has been popular power. Over half of the projects from Mission Vivienda has been, have been undertaken with the participation of the local communities. This is basically um, means that even though Hugo Chavez made sure that the Constitution guarantees universal access to housing, it was the people to collective solution that began to organize to make that happen. So for years, we have working class families that have occupied the land in the cities and they have built the homes themselves. They are, of course, supported with supplies, training and resources provided by the Bolivarian government. But this union and this, this new way of thinking of housing that is not a private property, but it is a communities for us to, to grow and communities that we can uh, collectively own and protect uh, has been critical in creating new housing in Venezuela. So in going back to what I said at the beginning, Mission Vivienda has built 4 million homes so far, and this is an incredible achievement. And this is due because people found these solutions to find a space of land that is unoccupied, that is idle, that, and then they make sure that they follow all the necessary steps to have the paperwork, to manage the land, to build these houses, and then they, so they become this self-managed community. And, you know, so that is the, that, that is the success behind Mission Vivienda, Collective Solution. And this program has the goal to build 5 million houses in total by 2025. And again, that is only going to be possible because the communities, the people are organizing to make that happen. So basically, if you think about it, Mission Vivienda is an example that dignified homes are possible for everyone when you have an anti-imperialist working class that fights to protect everything they have gained with years of struggle, that fights against the logic of market and capitalism. And also when you have a political and economic system like the Bolivarian process that prioritizes human life and human dignity. 
Yeah. And I think of all of the social issues that we face, one of the ones that really puts the contradiction between labor and capital is the issue of housing. And while I think the Great Housing Mission wouldn't have been able to take off the way that it has had it not been for the pressure of the social movements, I think it's important to note that they were also in dialogue with a revolutionary government that was willing to defy this notion of housing as a commodity and directly challenge the interests of capitalists. And as I said, you know, this issue affects the interests of the building industry, the housing developers, the banks. How important is the effort to decommodify housing in the broader struggle against capitalism? Yeah, I mean, you're completely correct. I think decommodifying housing is definitely key to fighting against capitalism. You know, when we stop thinking of housing as a commodity, when we stop thinking about houses as things to be bought and sold, and instead we think of them as homes, as a basic human right, that's when we begin defying the logic of capitalism. That's when we actually begin to change a housing market that has basically excluded everyone who is not wealthy to have a home. So we live in a global political and economic system that has uh, convinced us that the only people who can have access to housing are those who can pay or those who are willing to acquire an impossible debt to a landlord or a bank. So otherwise we can have a home. So there are these examples like Mission Vivienda that was created specifically to challenge housing as a capitalist commodity by emphasizing that access to the land and to adequate housing is a human right. So I think this is basically why social programs like Mission Vivienda are always under attack all the time. So this is why the U.S. government has imposed economic sanctions against Venezuela because we are setting an example on how to fight against capitalism globally even if we have our ups and downs. So what I'm saying is that, yeah, when you have a working class people that are very aware that housing is not a commodity, that is a right, and they are willing to fight for it every day and find collective solutions and work alongside a government that supports this, this initiative, then that's how you begin to defeat a a system like capitalism that has taken away for so many decades people's right to a dignified living. I love that you said that it's an example for people. And I really do hope that our listeners understand how powerful an example this really is. That if we have a conscious and mobilized working class together with a government that favors the interests of the working class, we can actually find ourselves in a situation where we challenge the interests of the ruling class. And only that way will we actually be able to decommodify housing, to take those bold risks and take to the streets and demand that our human rights, the right to housing, is respected. Thank you so much, Andrina, for joining us. As always, it's been a great experience talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for talking about Mission Vivienda, because it's truly something that I think the world should know about. Y el nuevo fruto tiene que ser ir superando el egoísmo, la violencia, el individualismo y todo lo malo que ha tenido el capitalismo contra el pueblo. Para eso es la gran misión vivienda Venezuela. Yo sueño con eso. In this first segment, our guest, Juan Carlos Rodríguez, talks to us about the work of the Pobladores Movement 
and how they conceptualize their struggle for dignified housing and against capitalism in the urban context. My name is Juan Carlos Rodriguez. I'm part of the Pobladores movement, national spokesperson of the Pioneer Encampment Organization. Pobladores is a platform that brings together urban struggle organizations. We bring together organizations that unite the people excluded by capitalism in cities, excluded by capitalist relations of production in the city. There are many organizations here. You have the pioneer encampments. We're the ones who build new communities under a self-management logic. We're the ones that rescue land to build new communities via self-management. We also have tenants in the tenants movement, the occupiers movement, domestic workers and the urban land committees that function in the barrios. All this is what constitutes the Pobladores movement as a platform of urban struggle. Let's say that our two main rallying cries or horizons of struggle rather are urban revolution and communal socialism. We believe that it is necessary to transform the relations of domination, which are colonial relations that are reproduced in modern cities. We believe that the cities we have today are the product of a colonial civilizational model, the modern colonial civilizational model, which must be opposed as relations of domination of all kinds, class, gender, race, etc. In other words, these are relations of political, economic, social, cultural, and subjective domination, all of which are part of the forms of domination and exploitation of human beings within the framework of the civilizing project of modernity. This model has its key points or scenarios in the city, and we put forward the need to fight back against all these relations and build a city, or unbuild the city, this city model, decolonizing this worldview, this way of life we have in our cities. We want to move towards a communal model, a communal way of life within this city as a form of cultural resistance, of civilization, the construction of a sustainable alternative for human life. And that's only possible, let's say, if it comes from the excluded classes. Of course, this produces a number of contradictions. Because on the one hand, there's this project, this model of the city imposed by modern colonial societies a model that makes life in the city and the possibility of reproducing life untenable for the majority. Although little by little, we can say, this process of colonization is gradually taking over more and more space. And not how it organizes the city, taking over almost all its spaces, but it is also colonizing the countryside, the rural areas, the forests. We could say that there is a kind of battle for space between the forces of domination, of colonization, of modernity, and on the other side, life, the life of people, the life of other non-human species. We witness today a central contradiction. We believe that the central contradiction is not capital labor, but capital and life. On the one hand, I was saying that there was a contradictory scenario because the cities we have are cities that were not designed for life and increasingly displace and colonize more and more space and are depopulating and disabling the city and making the possibility of reproducing life in the city more and more difficult. They're excluding the great majorities from our Latin American cities, and at the global level, a global phenomenon of depopulation, of displacement that denies the possibility of life for the great majorities. But on the other hand, the great majorities excluded from these processes of urbanization, colonization, and modernization aspire to modernity as a way of life.
So it's a, a contradiction that they aspire to live under a way of life that excludes them and that is not viable or sustainable. However, we still bet on the construction of an organization, of an organizational process of struggle against these relations of domination to transform the city and build within the city other ways of life. For us, the central aspect is to rebuild the form of community life within the city as an alternative to a reproduction of a different form that we see in other cities. We call this process the communalization of the city. But basically, the goal is to rebuild the social fabric within the city, to recompose the communal way of life as an alternative. With the limitations that this has in terms of the city-countryside contradiction, to what extent the commitment to rebuild community forms of life in the city are sustainable, when the cities themselves are unsustainable in terms of resources, food, etc. But in addition to the central contradiction, this rural-urban contradiction, which we do not have completely resolved, let us say that the alternative to this contradiction, if we bet on rebuilding and building within the city, is the communitarian way of life. In this next segment, Rodriguez specifies that the fight for housing will invariably bring the working class into conflict with private property. He also covers the role of housing in the process of capital accumulation and the poison that is financial speculation. Tú me preguntabas cómo cómo combatir la escasez de vivienda, ¿no? ¿Es posible atender el derecho humano a la vivienda digna sin poner en cuestión la propiedad privada y los intereses del capital? Yo creo que no. Incluso hay son son dos cosas que me preguntan. Las formas actuales de acumulación capitalista. You asked me how to combat housing shortages if it's possible to address the human right to decent housing without calling into question private property and the interests of capital. I don't think so. These two are antagonistic things. The current forms of capitalist accumulation try to turn all housing into financial assets. All housing operations that are promoted from real estate speculation operations, financial operations, are designed to convert housing into financial assets. In reality, they're no longer interested in producing for life. That is, instead they produce to sell. We understand that at this moment, capital's central form of wealth accumulation is not in the exploitation of labor. It's rather in these new economies, in these new economic forms of financial speculation, the virtual economy, etc., which have absolutely nothing to do with real life, which do not seek to satisfy any real-life need. In other words, they don't seek to produce food, nor to produce housing, nor to produce shelter, nor to produce anything that human beings need in order to reproduce material life in concrete terms. And the only thing they seek is an incessant process of capital accumulation by the most expeditious and fictitious means. Through all these financial bubbles that are created, which are like money printing machines. And they're no longer interested even in exploiting labor. They're not interested in selling merchandise. Those are secondary forms of accumulation or even tertiary forms of capitalist accumulation. Today, there are other key forms of capitalist accumulation. And moreover... These new forms of accumulation that are opening up, which not even accumulation of capital, they're accumulation of knowledge, accumulation of control, as there are all these digital forms of control of consumption, of subjectivity, social networks, and all this virtual digital world that is advancing rapidly towards a kind of global domination, where the value is no longer the value of labor, but the value of information, the possibility of modifying, manipulating behaviors, ideas, forms of consumption, etc., They seem to be like the new spaces of accumulation and domination that are opening up. And we still have to continue analyzing how far this is going to go, how far it could go, its consequences at this moment. So I don't believe that at this moment the capital has any interest in building housing. 
if it builds something, it'll build it in order to convert it into a financial asset. Everything in the city is going to become a financial asset. Caracas, for example, is an emblematic case. In Caracas, real estate developers are building gigantic glass office towers in some areas in the east of the city. And Caracas has an oversupply of office space. There are 500,000 square meters of office space that nobody's going to buy. But they continue to build glass towers and offices that nobody's going to buy. And they're only built as a kind of uh, vacuum cleaner of surplus capital from money laundering, etc., and which makes no sense. In other words, it's not produced with any human purpose. It's not done with the need to satisfy human needs, much less human rights in mind. So capital is not even going to produce housing, at least not for the working class. It's not even good business. This leaves us human beings with no alternative but to begin to configure an economy for life, capable of satisfying basic human needs such as housing, shelter, and food. We're going to have to do it ourselves. On the margin of all these new forms of accumulation, we're going to have to organize ourselves according to a different economy, an alternative economy, a real economy, an economy of production. That's what we're trying to do with our efforts towards self-managed housing production in a collective way. One of these things is real, because while others are speculating, even in Venezuela, while there are sectors speculating with cryptocurrencies, etc., trying to make money with that, we're dedicated to building in order to live. Evidently, the main mechanism to convert all urban space into financial assets and then enter into these bubbles of real estate speculation and financial speculation is private property. In other words, private property is the first step so that everything can be converted into a financial asset and be commodified, turned into financial assets. In the face of this, we're proposing the concept of collective property, which also completely avoids the possibility of the financialization of housing, of commodification of mortgaging housing, converting all social production, our collective production into financial instruments. So we've been putting up a fight because this form of private property is so embedded in the subjectivity of society that there's a kind of generalized resistance in the spheres of the government, the judiciary, the state in general, that's difficult for them to understand the model of collective property. That is to say, it's almost been normalized that housing has to be private property, individual property. Because otherwise, it makes no sense to build housing if it's not going to be private property or individual property that could be converted into mortgages, etc. It's a logic that's permeating the subjectivity even of our authorities. So that's why we're fighting for the recognition of collective property. It is in the Constitution. It's in many legal instruments in Venezuela. But there is a subjectivity and a reactionary and even refractory political position that does not want to open up these new forms of property that ensure that what we produce socially, that what we produce collectively, what we produce via self-management, maintains its use value as primary and not merely produced for its exchange value. I don't see the private construction sector, even the state construction sector, producing goods for its use value. I see it producing for its exchange value. Because everything the private sector does in terms of housing construction in Venezuela, everything it does, because in reality it does very little or almost nothing, or everything that the state government produces through the great housing mission, everybody then wants to convert it into a mortgage loan. You make a great effort to produce a social good to satisfy a need, but then you end up turning it into a financial instrument. We don't organize production based on exchange value, but on the production for use value, because we do it to live. We make houses to live in. We don't build houses to sell them. We make houses for communities. That's different. 
It even has another connotation and another dimension. On the other hand, the private sector builds houses to sell commodities, and the state builds houses to reproduce political power. There, we would have three definitions, the reproduction of power or the state as a provider of housing for the reproduction of power, the private sector as a builder of housing for the reproduction of capital, and us who produce housing for the reproduction of life through use values. These are the basic conceptions that we've been working on. In this final segment, Rodriguez gives us a glimpse into the relationship between autonomous social movements and the Venezuelan state, specifically how the work of these autonomous social movements have allowed them to preserve their gains, but also push the state to go further. Sobre el tema de la autonomía, nosotros no salimos a la calle a exigir autonomía. Para nosotros la autonomía no es algo que se exige, la autonomía es algo que se define. Nosotros estamos When it comes to autonomy, we don't go out on the streets to demand autonomy. For us, autonomy is not something to be demanded. It's something that is defined. In our case, we were born an autonomous movement. We weren't created by the government. The initiative to build the Pobladoras and the Pobladores movement was a popular autonomous initiative back in 2004, even if some of the organizations inside the platform were created by the government. For example, the urban land committees were promoted by Chavez in 2002 via a decree, Decree 1666, which looked to regularize land tenancy in urban barrios. But they managed to develop on their own. Although they were promoted by the government, they managed to develop autonomous political practices and articulation outside government tutelage. The remaining pobladores organizations, such as the pioneer encampments, the tenants movement, domestic workers, the occupiers movement, these were all popular autonomous initiatives. They happened in the context of the Bolivarian Revolution with Chavez, but they were autonomous initiatives. We've always been a movement that takes pride in its autonomy. We believe a social movement or popular movement must be out on the streets fighting in the political realm. That's the key role played by social movements, be it here in Venezuela or anywhere else in the world. We don't understand or don't conceive of a social movement or popular organization under government tutelage. It would no longer be a social organization. Therefore, as a movement, we've always made a point of sustaining and defending our political autonomy while also going out on the streets to fight for popular policies. We've always mobilized and taken to the streets, even with Chavez. We occupied the housing ministry several times. In fact, I think we did so with every single one of Chavez's housing ministries. Finally, in the year 2011, we had a meeting with Comandante Chavez, a political meeting with the Pobladores movement, which can be watched on YouTube. And with Chavez, we managed to agree on a very broad agenda of popular policies. Furthermore, this paved the way or laid the groundwork for the development of what would later become Venezuela's great housing mission. In other words, many of the policies we had been proposing before the great housing mission came about became policies of the revolution, state policies. For example, all this policy of rescuing idle plots in urban areas to build popular housing, which is being put in practice today in a massive way with the Great Housing Mission, this was a political line that we had been developing since 2006. We had to stage several land occupations in Caracas, some of them symbolic. This struggle saw us criminalized and even labeled as counter-revolutionaries by some sectors of Chavismo because we were discussing the need to rescue land in the city to build popular housing. Eventually it would end up becoming public policy. One of the things that Chavez raised in that meeting was that we as a social movement had to maintain our political autonomy. Chavez understood very well what we were doing, what we were proposing as a political horizon, and he fully supported it. During that meeting, we even proposed that Chavez lead the movement, but in response, he himself declared himself as just another poblador, 
but he would not establish a relationship with the president at the head of a social movement. Instead, he saw himself as a fighter. Of course, one with the size and magnitude in the standing of Chavez, who had a very clear conception of this historical role. All was in favor of the exploited and the excluded. Chavez was very clear when he said that if he had to choose between siding with campesinos or with large landowners, he would take the side of the campesinos. And if he had to choose between siding with the indigenous people and the transnational corporations, he would side with the indigenous people. And if he had to choose between siding with the developers, the urban landowners and the pobladores movement, he would side with the pobladores and those excluded from the city. That's why at that time we entrusted the leadership to Chavez. But we've always maintained levels of autonomy. We're not an appendix of the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, nor are we an appendage of the government. In this political context in Venezuela, there's a, I don't know how to call it, a tendency to try and co-opt social movements. In other words, there's little understanding of autonomous social movements. There's little openness to the autonomous development of social movements. Rather, there's always a desire to co-opt social and political organizations, to control social and political organizations and popular movements, to make use of social movements, to gain politically from them within the framework of the dispute for political power in Venezuela. Faced with this scenario, we've always sought to maintain our political autonomy. We don't let any state institution, nor the ruling party, nor political parties co-opt us. This brings us challenges as an organization because, furthermore, we're the type of organization that does not ask permission to take us to the streets and fight for the popular policies that we fight for. We can say that on one side, there's this tension to maintain our autonomy against this co-opting tendency to control social organizations. Most social organizations in Venezuela are under the wing of some government structure or a party structure because there was a good policy, in my view, that every government mission be connected with social organizations. I think this is correct, that social missions in Venezuela are sustained by popular organizations. But that's very different from having the government co-opt social movements and social organizations. So we have this constant tension and the position of organizations such as ours, our movement, to maintain our political autonomy and have it be respected is often poorly understood. At the end of the day, this is an exercise that we value, that we treasure, which is the possibility of fully exercising popular sovereignty. Because our political guidelines are defined in popular assemblies, community assemblies and such, they're defined in our day-to-day -day struggles. That's where the organization's political struggle is defined. It's debated in assemblies in a popular and democratic fashion. That, for us, is something we've built which we're not willing to surrender to anyone, because that's how we believe popular sovereignty should be exercised, through these mechanisms we've built ourselves. We put that in practice in all our organizations. It's a principle of ours in terms of what the political construction process should look like. The assembly is where decisions are made, always in a collective fashion. There are no personal leaderships. Political leadership and authority is totally collective. So that's part of our construction process. The principles we uphold as part of a protagonistic and participatory democratic exercise, the full exercise of popular sovereignty, and we're not willing to give up on it or hand it over to someone. I was saying that with Comandante Chavez, there could perhaps be an exception because of his stature, the type of leadership he had, the magnitude of his leadership. Right now, there's no one that can assume a similar role in Venezuela. We remain committed to our political construction process. Last year, for example, on October 4th, 
We held a large rally on World Habitat Day that marched to the National Assembly. We presented a legislative bill to the National Assembly, a bill for the self-managed production of habitat and popular housing. It's a project that we've been pushing for several years in Venezuela. Because we want all of these self-managed, popular communal housing production experiences to have a legal basis that will recognize them. It will recognize the right that all people and all families have to organize and produce their own housing and habitat. But we want the state, beyond recognizing this as a human right, which is a very significant step, mind you, to also make available the necessary instruments and resources for this policy to be implemented. Even more so amidst the neoliberal privatizing opening context that we are witnessing in Venezuela, with private actors pushing for something completely contrary to our proposals. The construction and real estate chambers in Venezuela are instead pushing for a liberalization of the real estate market, boosting private construction and deregulating rents. They're proposing to modify the law that protects and regulates the rental market, modify the law that regulates mortgages, the law against financial scams. And they're lobbying and want an opening of the speculative housing market to push their housing bubble logic, which currently is not possible under the present conditions of the Venezuelan financial system. So they want a deregulation of the financial system to reactivate all these real estate bubbles that historically have been a niche for the accumulation of wealth for the Venezuelan bourgeoisie. If there's anything that characterizes the Venezuelan bourgeoisie, it's that it's not industrious. The Venezuelan bourgeoisie is parasitic. And the business of the city, the construction business, has been its key form of accumulating wealth, as well as the transfer of state resources, the oil rents, into just a few hands. It's been its pillaging method, the seizing of the oil rent. So they'll push from their side and we'll push from ours. I think right now we should even take our belligerents up a notch. In other words, right now it's more important than ever to defend our political autonomy, safeguard our political autonomy, and raise our mobilization levels raise our strength on the streets to push for popular policies and to make sure that this new climate of opening that is favoring the private sector and neoliberal policies, this liberal liberalizing opening does not undo all the gains we had under Chavez. That's our program for today. Thank you for joining us. We have a special episode planned for our loyal listeners, a roundtable discussion with the Venezuela Analysis team, where we will be answering your questions. Do you have a burning question about Venezuela and the Bolivarian process? something you feel mainstream outlets are not explaining properly. Get in touch with us via email or social media. Questions from our Patreon supporters will be given priority, so consider subscribing and help us keep producing this content. Remember, our work is 100% funded by readers. Be sure to visit us at venezuelanalysis.com for regular news and analysis on all things Venezuela. We're also everywhere on social media, from Telegram to Instagram and, of course, Twitter. If you enjoyed the program, please share it with your friends and leave us a review. It really helps us out. We'll end today's episode with Y Cuando Ya No Tengas Donde Vivir by Elemento Extremo. Donde
hasta que lo pierdes Cuando ya no lo tengas verás lo que sientes Si dañamos todo lo que nos ha puesto Destruimos la fauna, la flora y el resto Sin tomar ya conciencia de lo que estás haciendo Ignoramos la culpa para no detenernos Y cuando ya no tengas en dónde vivir Tendrás que viajar muy lejos de aquí A otro planeta o a otro sistema A ver si depredas todo lo que encuentras allí Lo que encuentras allí Se queja, la tierra no es del hombre, no es de la tierra, nunca la contaminas, que eso es lo que nos queda. Y dañamos todo lo que nos ha puesto, destruimos la fauna, la flora y el resto, sin tomar ya conciencia de lo que estás haciendo, ignoramos la culpa para no detenernos. Y cuando ya no tengas en dónde vivir, tendrás que viajar muy lejos de aquí a otro planeta o a otro. A ver si depredas todo lo que cuentas allí 